Welcome to the Get Real About Safety podcast. In our podcast, we discuss the new view of safety, what works and what doesn't work, to break down old paradigms and help you improve safety performance in your organization. Hi, I'm Mike. And I'm Pam, and we appreciate you listening. Please share and subscribe and tell others about this podcast. You can find us on most podcast platforms and also on YouTube. Good morning and welcome to the Pro Safe Podcast. And we are talking today about what makes a rigor a qualified. And I've got um, two great folks joining me here. I've got Sam Sokolow. Am I pronouncing that right, Sam? Well, I've been called worse, but Sokolow. Sokolow. I mess that up every time. All right, right. Sam Sokolow and uh, Philip Grison. So Sam, um, you want to start and introduce yourself and who you are and who you work for and what you do and also a little uh, about your rigging experience. My rigging experience. That's always a good one. People ask me that all the time. How'd you get into doing what you do? I'm like, I'm not quite sure. (laughs) So uh, my name's Sam Soclo. I'm the uh, product application manager, uh, recently promoted to director of operations over all Ashley Sling. Um, I've been in the business approximately 25 years. I've worked for four different rigging manufacturing companies. Uh, when people do ask me the question, how did you get into this? I always refer back to uh, my childhood years where I used to rock climb up on uh, Lookout Mountain in Spelunk. And uh, <laughs> I met up with a, a Navy SEAL and a, and a ranger who taught me how to professionally rock climb. Uh, so I guess I've always just had a fascination with rigging, tying knots in, in general. Awesome. And uh, then I, when I left college, uh, went into steel fabrication. So I used to build structural steel and conveyor systems in a factory and eventually did installations in the field. So um, I know a teeny bit about rigging. I don't know everything about rigging, that's for sure. Well, you know a lot more than anybody I know personally. So I appreciate that. I try real hard. (laughs) So Philip, I'll let you formally introduce yourself. Of course, you are my son for those that are in the know out there. That's right. Uh, I feel for Sam because most people call me Philip Greason and it's Greason. So uh, I feel you, Sam. The, the, they're weird last names, right? People struggle. Well, with you them. get used to it. I'm not sensitive. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, yeah, so Philip Greason, been with Prose for a little over 20 years now in the uh, construction uh, training and consulting business. And so, of course, things like uh, rigging and, and signal person training come up. Uh, a good bit today, but um, at, like Pam and Mike, my mom and Mike uh, uh, really embrace human error philosophy and that uh, we all are prone to make mistakes and it's actually just natural. And of course that applies to the subject we're going to talk about today. Yes, it and, does. And uh, I might even throw in a little bit of, uh, you know, study a lot of behavior, uh, sometimes from the leadership standpoint, but sometimes from the self-improvement standpoint. And uh, I think some of those things it kind of applied to, to rigging as well. And so we might get into some of those conversations. Well, it, it definitely does because we're going to touch on the issue of leadership and rigging and, and go ahead and refer to your website and your kind of um, passion. Yeah, so have a, um, 
leaderthink.com and uh, there's a podcast on there it's available on all major platforms apple and stitcher and all of that but uh, really embrace the the leadership side of it um and the reason is that no matter how good the science it's only as good as the leadership that supports it and and you know i've right. said many times that you know when i started it was all behavior-based safety and although we still have some of those components we use today um, you know, now it's it's human error and human operating philosophy, but whatever great science we give people in our in our safety community, it, it's still only as effective as the leadership that supports it. So that's my passion. And, and you did not mention also, though, that your rigging training um, also was, I think Sam was the inspiration for your uh, master rigging training class that you took. Didn't he refer you to that? Amen. Yeah, no, it said, um, Sam, I'm paraphrasing and, and correct me if I'm wrong. I know our memories are flawed, but I think I asked you, what is the absolute best rigging class that I could go to to learn more? And you referred me to ITI. And mm -hmm. my experience was he is right. And it, it was really one of the greatest experiences I ever had because it was so hands on that, uh, you know, paraphrasing, it was a week long class. But each day started with some classroom training, doing a lot of math, right? That's part mm -hmm. of rigging, going over concepts. And then we go out in the field and, and do what we learned for real with real cranes and real rigging. And, uh, you know, a highlight of that moment that stands out was, um, was calculating load weight. And the instructor taught us how we calculate unknown load weights. And then he sent us out to the field and, and there was this you know, big industrial piece of equipment. And he said, okay, there you go. Figure out what it weighs. You can use whatever rigging <laughs> you want. Get the crane, move it over there and don't kill anybody. And then he said, bye. And he walked away and, and, oh, and it was a great experience, you know? So I know the operator wouldn't have let us kill anybody, the operator in the crane, but, uh, right. But that kind of stuff was awesome. Training. I bet you he was so. smiling real big though. Uh. <laughs> yeah, <he was. laughs> well, I remember you calling me from the class um, and with some frustration in your voice that you had ruined every pair of khaki pants you had brought up there. <laughs> you went to rigging school in khakis? Khakis, well, yes. That's all right. <laughs> Souvenirs. <laughs> no, it's, it's, but that's, that's a true statement. I was fresh. Okay, so one, they made you work hard. And, and you know, I'm, I'm sweating. I've made this terrible, yeah. <laughs> this terrible joke that a lot of times safety training is you get your card if you have a pulse, right? Yeah. You show up to the right. class, here's your card because you sat in a chair all day and that guy made us work. And, and, and that was the misconception of, you know, what is our traditional safety training? We go sit in a room all day and, you know, we joke around with Donna Harness or something like that. But, uh, he, yeah, I ruined all my khakis that week. I was unprepared, but it was great training. I think it's what we should be doing. Well, um, I think that's I a, that's a good segue. I want to segue into how this podcast came to be and, and, and get into the meat of it a little bit. I have used Sam as my go-to person to call and be frustrated about rigging problems I observe on job sites. So, over the years, um, with general contractors or subcontractors, it seems like I'm always either you know making observations on a job site that are horrific, or it's post-incident. Now all of a sudden, everybody's worried about their rigors, and I and I call Sam. And so I had sent Sam an email recently with some questions and some 
frustrations um, about the problem of having what Philip just referred to as having a card in your wallet um, and that not making you a rigger. And Sam responded back with a bit of a rant of his own. And I <laughs> loved it. So you, you want to give me a quick summary of, of that rant and what you have been seeing over the years? I knew I should have read over that email before we did this, but <laughs> I pretty much know it in gist. I you mean, know it. Um, you know, first of all, there's a lot of people out there that have cards and the card yes. doesn't necessarily make you qualified. In fact, you know, my friends that I sit on council with, um, you know, some of my friends, I, I sit on the web sling and tie down associations, uh, three technical committees. Some of the people that sit there also sit on the ANSI committees. One of, one of my acquaintances actually sits on the NCCCO board, um, advisory board, and we all talk about qualified versus certified even. Um, you know, a card doesn't yeah. make you qualified. Even a certified card doesn't make you qualified. The question is, is what are you qualified at? So when I'm teaching class, one of the first things I tell my the folks that are in the qualified classes, know what you're qualified at, know what you're not qualified at. A card doesn't necessarily make you qualified. In fact, when we were doing a lot of training out at the Plant and Vogel Nuclear Project, uh, they decided that they wanted all the riggers who had qualified cards from their union halls to go through my class, a basic fundamental class with some basic questions just to make sure, you know, they had the fundamentals. And unfortunately there was probably 15, 10 to 15% failure rate. Um, you know, now typically we have a, a better pass rate from people that come from a, like a union because there's apprenticeship programs. There's a lot of training involved. Right. When we get into the general contracting end, like uh, here in downtown Atlanta, a lot of these folks aren't unions. There were no apprenticeship programs. So uh, my failure rate for my, um, for my classes are uh, probably jump up sometimes 20%. 30%. I've had some classes where I fell over 60% of the students. I mean, uh, we have a firm belief that everybody isn't made to be a rigger and some folks that just shouldn't be their vocation. And you know, that is so scary when you think about driving in downtown Atlanta with all the tower cranes swinging loads all over the place and to think about what kind of failure rate you have for the people that rig those loads. That's just downright scary. And then, of course, I'm sure just like you folks, folks will contact me and some folks don't like the idea that I failed, folks. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sorry, but you don't just because you have a pulse, you don't get a card. I mean, obviously, if we're just <laughs> handing out cards, people can get seriously injured and that's not my intent. So we, 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 hard, we hold the line pretty hard on that. And, you know, I think the course is fairly easy because it's open book and all you have to do is answer questions, but just, you know, some people are good at math. Some people are good at English. Some people are good at rigging. Some people aren't. Exactly. Um, we have seen, you know, this big uh, influx of cards since the construction crane standard uh, was revised and came into effect. And Philip, you want to give a quick summary of what's in that standard and how that, kind of drove people to everybody having a card now. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm going to give OSHA some credit, uh, that, uh, I'm, which don't always do right. That, uh, I'm, I think when we start, you know, since I've been here 20 years in this, in this industry, I didn't see near as much rigor training going on as we have in the past 10 years. Right. And I do think that that crane standard, it did motivate that, you know, that we started looking at that more. And, and I think that's a good thing. That, that's a good thing that we are starting 
to train people on the uh, on, on rigging because I, I think people have been rigging loads this whole time. We're just getting better at starting to train, and, and so that it's not perfect, right? And we're having a conversation that's not perfect, but I am happy that we're on the path with it. Um, and, and so you know the the citations we see each year in the crane standard are, are pretty small compared to things like ladder use and that kind of stuff but it, it has gained attention and so now we're doing it which is good right that is a good thing um if you want a summary okay so we have to have a qualified rigger for assembly disassembly and when we will have people within the fall zone of a load right and so we have to have a qualified rigger and one of the the biggest frustrations i think is when you look at what the standard says a qualified rigor is a rigor that meets the criteria for a qualified person now right. what the heck does that mean exactly. right and so if, if you whittle that away that definition um i don't think we're sending anybody to college to get a bachelor's degree in rigging so that is not going to fit this definition i do think the or in that qualified person definition you know professional standing maybe certification but training and experience that i think that matters for our conversation because we're talking about training but training alone is not it right experience matters as well and then on top of that um if you look at the the compliance directive the compliance directive clearly states that experience alone does not qualify you. And if you tie it back to the definition, there's an and there. It's training and experience, right? But I think we could flip it around. The training alone doesn't qualify you either. Both are important, right? Yes. I agree. Absolutely. Well, so, Sammy, um, yeah. Go ahead. I'm well, sorry, but that, just it, continue the conversation on this. What is enough training? What is good training? You're ongoing. Sam, or you... <laughs> <laughs> ongoing training, right? I don't think there's ever enough training. Uh, I'm still learning. Right? That's right. Totally. Okay. So, Sam, listen. Okay. We're going down that path. So, I want to go to it. And I, I want your thoughts as well. Okay. And, um, Sam, I think of you as a real friend and a real friend is somebody who will call me out on my BS. Okay. And oh, so yeah, I would do that you, definitely for you. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> and, and, and you do challenge me sometimes. And that's why I consider you a real friend. A real friend wouldn't do that. Right. I'm going to, a, a non friend wouldn't do that. So feel free to challenge anything I'm going to say in, in my eyes, when I look around the world, there's, there's some people go level one, level two. Some people say journeyman master. I've even seen level one, level two, level three. And so there are different entities that have different definitions out there, right? And so I'm going to use a certain entity's definition of a level one. And, and one thing that's in there is that a qualified person works under the supervision of a competent person. And to me, that means something that even though we put you through the class and you have training and experience, that the, you still have a mentor to go to when you have problems. And I think that's important, isn't it? The card doesn't make you qualified. I still need to have experience and I need to have somebody to go to when I have problems, right? Yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. So, uh, but then the, 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 the challenge a little bit too, I mean, if we're realistic about it is that, um, you know, another thing in that certain entities definition that I, I'm thinking of that you are not required to calculate load weight, right? The, the, the load is provided the, the load weight center of gravity configuration and rigging are provided to you. And so a lot of times I'm telling people, Hey, do you ever have to calculate load weight? And they're like, Oh no, we never have to do that. Okay. Hey, have you ever had to pick up a Connex box with a bunch of stuff in it? Well, yeah. Uh, that's calculating load weight. How about a skip pan <laughs> full of a bunch of stuff? Yeah. Uh, that's calculating load weight, right? Okay. Well, you need the ITI master rigor course for 1800 bucks a person. Can you right. do something in a day? Right. Mm -hmm. and, and that is true in our world today. So what do you think about all that, Sam? Well, I think there's some pretty, pretty large extremes there. You know, a lot of folks out there just want the, the quickest course possible. Some people try to tell me, can you do it in four hours? Can you do it in three hours? I personally think one day is not enough. Um, I wish everybody could be a master rigger and, and go to a week long school. We know that that's not, uh, it's probably not plausible or going to happen. Um, but, uh, you know, continuing education is extremely important that a rigger doesn't understand how to do any calculations of low weight under have a true understanding of center of gravity. Um, I believe that should be level one rigging. If, if you don't understand those basic fundamentals, how can you understand the rest of them? That's why, you know, people ask me, what, what is my basic class? I always say, well, it's a level one, level two, because I actually teach you, you know, tension factors, reduction factors, and, you know, we highlight center of gravity and just give them some real basic concepts. I'm not asking them to figure it all out, but at least grasp the concept. Um, you know, and some of these organizations that give you these certified cards, you know, their level one to me just isn't even adequate. Um, so I, th I think that's where you were going. So from a, we hear the term best practice all the time in the right. industry. And if you were to define what, what you believe would be a best practice minimal amount of training for someone who's going to rig a load, what would that look like? Well, they definitely need to have some type of professional training. This isn't something where the foreman or somebody just told them what they learned from somebody else. This is going to yeah. a professional class, something like uh, you folks would do or I would do or any major you know, accredited agency might do. Um, that's just to make sure they have the fundamentals. Um, second to that is actually hands-on training specific to their job. You know, like the standard says, you know, they have to be qualified to do the rigging work at hand. So I tell folks, if, if all you're doing is flying two by fours and lumber, we just have to get you qualified for that. But what we need to make a clear distinction on is that gentleman is only qualified to do that particular work. He may not be qualified maybe to fly the drill rig that's behind me or mm -hmm. to lift nuclear fuel rods or to, you know, just working out of his area of expertise. Uh, nobody knows everything about rigging, uh, including myself. And the, and the definition of a, a true qualified person is, is knowing when you're not qualified. So, uh, well, training should be continuing uh, and ongoing. Um, One sure. of the, okay, uh, so Sam, go, go ahead, Philip. You said something I think really important is knowing when you're not qualified, and 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 going back to that definition of qualified person. You know, the most important part is 
can you solve problems related to the work, right? Mm -hmm. And can you solve problems related to swing tension, uh, four-legged bridles and things that, we, that might be out of our expertise. And so if we can't solve that problem, we're not qualified for that particular rigging. And, and, you know, context is everything. So we're talking about this stuff. Rigging, if I tie back to what the directive says, and here's what they're telling the compliance officers, that rigging ranges from the simple to the complex, right? Absolutely. And, and so... Yeah, there's various levels of what what someone needs training in based on the type of rigging they do. And, and, and you know, I think you and I had a conversation one time, Sam, about if I'm just a drywall guy and all I do in my life is pick up pallets of drywall, then that's pretty simplistic rigging. Now, I still need to know sling tension and all those kinds of things. Um, but if I'm also picking up scissor lifts, that changes things, doesn't it? Big time. And, and so, you know, what are we looking at? What What is it you do? You need to be trained in that. And that's what's hard to, to define with this conversation because there's not a one-size-fits-all in our industry, especially if Sam or I have a bunch of different subs in the room, right? The mechanical guy, the steel erector, and the drywall guy are not rigging the same stuff. And I think that makes it difficult for us to do the laser focused quality job based on what you do, right? right? But in perfect world, we would probably more isolate people based on the type of rigging they do and ultra focus on that. I, I completely agree. Obviously the training has to be appropriate for, for the people and then the type of work they're doing. And when you mix the room up, you have to be more generalized rather than like you said, laser focused on particular subjects or things, you know, that are going to be, you know, critical to, to that particular type of uh, trade. One of the things that I, I have recommended all along and I wish I could see happening out there though, is that once, um, someone has gone to this training class and they're out on the site that they're, that the employer do that evaluation, you know, and we just don't see that, but you can't just because they have the card, you know, how, unless you're actually going out and formally evaluating them in the workplace, doing their tasks, how do you know that they learned what they need to know? I think that's a great point. Um, you know, how often do they go out there? Uh, I, and sometimes in my class, I bring up, you know, um, uh, had some incidents where an OSHA person would walk up to somebody and say, who's a qualified rigger? And then, you know, okay, what's the capacity of your rigging in that configuration? And they can't answer. And they can't answer. And then I always challenge people, they, they, they start worrying, well, you know, I can't, you know, this is a lot of technical information. I'm like, typically what Philip was saying, you have job specific tasks. If you're a drywall guy right. or you're an iron worker, I challenge any trade. I'll tell them, you probably only use about six or eight different pieces of rigging on a regular basis. Now they might change in length, but you're going to use two inch straps, three inch straps, four inch straps, typically all two plus. It's rare that we see one inch straps out on the site. So, and then you're going to use wire rope slings. Typically on most construction sites are going to be starting at half inch, five eighths, three quarter, usually nothing over one inch unless we're making a big lift. Um, so I, I challenge my folks to actually sit down and create their own cheat charts. Hey, if I pull two four inch um, 
web slings and I configure them in a 60 degree triangle, what's my capacity? These, this could be, this is a thought process that can happen and after hours or in training classes, somebody needs to analyze at what they do on a regular basis in each process. I do know some of the larger contractors will say, hey, if you're flying a skip pan, this is the way we want you to fly. If you fly lumber, drywall, this is the way we expect you. So establishing company procedures is critical, um, but also just walking up to people and evaluating them. Hey, man, what's the capacity of your rigging? What type of rigging angle do you think you have there? Those would be great leading questions. You know, and I'm going to circle back to what Philip said, you know, the last 10 years has been great because before the last 10 years, the only time I did training was after an accident. Right. So now we're actually training them before the accident, which, you know, is, is, is a lot be better scenario. So you, that, there's some really great things you just said there. One, the um, having a check sheet that, you know, I'm going to later on, we'll talk about human performance and human error as it ties into rigging. And that's something that's a, a, an H, what we call an HP tool, uh, tool. It's a human performance tool because people will forget. So having a cheat sheet little and having, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, procedures um, and written procedures is a critical thing. Um, the other thing I just have to follow up on is, is I love that uh, idea of here's some questions to ask when you're out in the field because what concerns me is that i see we have jobs now that have 20 to 40 safety people on the job and yet any one of the three of us can walk out on that job and within minutes see something wrong with a rigging scenario uh, or rigging equipment we're, how are we missing that? How is that? I think that our auditing process of the jobs is great when it comes to PPE and guardrails, but we miss things like this. If we're not asking those questions, we're not delving into that. Um, so I really like that. And then the, the other thing, though, is that I'd like to ask either one of you your opinions on when it comes to auditing the job site, and I'm huge on auditing, you have to audit the heck out of everything or things will drift, right? So does our management, if, if the people that are getting trained are the riggers, are our safety professionals, our supervisors, and our senior management educated at least enough so that when they're out of the out on the job they could see something that's glaringly wrong because right now i'm not sure that's true thoughts from either of you um no you're absolutely right um one of the things they did out of the plant vogel project uh, when i went out there is southern company put every site observer i guess safety person these are people that just stood around watching Right. And uh, they put every one of them through one of my classes. Um, I'm seeing more of that on the superintendent level. A lot of the larger general contractors are sending uh, the, the superintendents and a lot of the safety folks. Um, you know, I don't do training quite as much as uh, most. We're not a training company. We're a rigging manufacturing company. Right. But I find the, the, the large majority of people that are coming to me these days are uh, they're sending in groups of superintendents and, and groups of safety people, which I just think is great. That's you know, not only can they spot a problem, but a lot of these folks are able to help solve the problem. Isn't that 
the biggest part of being in safety isn't just say you're doing it wrong, but <laughs> have corrective action to help them do it right. We don't want to just shut down the job. We want to make things better. Very good. Philip, you have any follow-up to that? I, you know, I think Sam nailed it there. Um, and I've seen more safety people attending some of those classes, which is good. And, and, you know, and just like we've said multiple times, we're in that 10-year span of generating more awareness, right? Um, you know, I did want to circle back to something, and, and I know we've had this conversation before about equipping versus developing, and, and uh, you know, Sam said ongoing training is needed, which is true that uh, I forget the number, but uh, the United States of America spends billions of dollars on check the box one and done training every year. And, and you know, being a trainer and knowing we, we were what a 15 percent retention rate like a week later that they're forgetting that. So where's the development piece? And it would be good to from a training perspective and a human performance perspective to do a little bit more development and, and to see that that is how our brains work, that the class, no matter how, even the ITI class, I don't remember more than 15% of what I learned, right? That are we developing our people? And, and if we tie that back to the OSHA thing or not the OSHA thing, but that basic level one rigor worked under the supervision of a competent person, right? Do they have a mentor? Right? Do they have a mentor to mentor them when they forget that 0.866 reduction factor or whatever we throw at them in the class? You know, they are going to forget. Well, that kind of makes me come back to um, that comment of yours of the competent person and the mentor. And I'm visualizing in Pam's perfect world that every job would have that at least one competent person and rigging who had a master rigging qualification or certification. And, 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 and that that would just be something you just did as part of your requirements for rigging procedures. So you have that expertise available on every job site. Definitely. So, um, you know, do we have somebody to go to? Sam, you said something that I'm, um, not everybody is meant to be a qualified rigger. And, and I think that's a true statement, right? And, and we have this culture and construction of everybody goes through the class and everybody gets it. Well, yeah, we want a bunch of people with basic knowledge of rigging, but like you just said, should we, should there be some people that we invest in more? And I think the answer is yes, that it would be good to have some people go through the ITI class or, or the more advanced level training. So we can have mentors out there, but this whole idea of everybody goes to the same class, you know, yeah, everybody's got to wear a hard hat, but that kind of thinking, I don't think works for this subject matter. We need to pick. I, I concur. If, could we talk a little bit about the problem for general contractors? And I feel their pain to some extent here is that what's become the norm, at least here in the Southeast, is that the general contractors verify that subcontractors have a card and then they get a red vest. I mean, that's happening, you know, that not at the happening. plant. Yeah, that is yeah. happening. What, if, what would a better process look like? I personally think that they should have some type of a test 
just like we were doing out at the Plant Vogel nuclear project, I would think that whoever they're claiming is qualified should come in. They should have a basic skills test. It doesn't have to be 15 pages in eight hours. You could literally give them a two-page test that would take them less than an hour and just see if they understand the fundamentals of rigging. And then I think there should be some type of uh, um, evaluation in the field, you know? Um, yes. Somebody needs to walk out there from the general contractor side and say, hey, what's the capacity of your rigging? And, hey, you're inspecting that sling. What are you inspecting it for? And, you know, there's some clear signs, just like when you go to a job site and if it's if it's disorganized and dirty, you can just feel that their accidents happen. We know that that that's a cause of accidents. It, it just if they're not even organized, everything's disorganized. That's just the surface of the iceberg usually. So, and then you being safety for professionals like me, I can tell when I'm on a site and I'm like, uh oh, <laughs> I can just look around the site and go, this is dangerous. I need to be very, very careful. Um, I think the way people treat their rigging and handle their rigging tell you a lot about the actual rigger. Um, if I walk out and the guy's throwing his slings around, they're keeping them in the mud, they're, they're not treating them like a tool that can literally make them or break them or hurt or kill somebody. I mean, it's literally one of the most important tools on a job site, just telling, seeing how people treat their rigging. And I always teach in my classes that I can tell by the way you treat your rigging. If you go out and meet with the best riggers in the world, they truly take care of their slings like their job depends on it um people's lives depend on it and uh it's it's obvious in fact they won't even let you a lot of times if you walk up and try to grab their sling they'll be no 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 you ain't touching my sling <laughs> they they take ownership of it and when you walk out on these jobs and the rigging's just thrown all over the place and it's in the mud and i mean to me that immediately screams rigging training um we're, we're gonna have an incident here well, uh, that's a perfect segue because I, I think that was one of the things I had in my email that uh, I'd asked you for some photographs of rigging racks and right. um, that that was a huge hot button of mine, not just from a safety standpoint, but it's critical. If everything you said, if you're seeing the rigging laying, laying in the dirt, you know you have a problem. And the use of rigging racks to me ought to be something we absolutely require and i had mentioned i think to you the time study i saw so when we, we we try to separate these problems out into safety and their safety their production and their quality because the time study i i've seen showed the tremendous amount of production improvement by the use of a rigging rack versus having to go hunt for your rigging all over the job site so you take that and the fact that rigging you know that rigging is expensive, isn't it, Sam? It can be, yes. It can <laughs> it's be. It's expensive. Yeah. So it shocks me that we have supervision or management walk by rigging laying in the mud, knowing that we are we're throwing money in the mud, you know, beyond the safety issue. So uh, thought that I think that just falls into what you're saying about storage, um, not just storage from safety standpoint, from the ability for someone to be able to select the proper sling. If they've got to go hunt in the mud for a sling, they're likely to pick up one that's not the appropriate sling just because it's the first one they can get their hands on. And 
by using the rack that gives them the ability to better see and identify damage. And then obviously it in, back to that money factor, it increases the life of the sling. So I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but I'd sure like to see that be something that just more widespread. Well, also a lot of the times the rigging's laying around, it suffers mechanical damage from being yes. on the ground. People are running over them with forklifts or running yes. over them with heavy equipment. Uh, the riggers throw them. I mean, I've witnessed it on the job myself. Uh, I've seen uh, delivery trucks running over the four ways, uh, four way wire rope slings. And before I can get down to the bottom on the buck hoist to say something to somebody, they're already flying materials on the building. Um, you know, so I walked into the superintendent's trailer and I said, hey, I saw a delivery truck running over your four ways. And then he turns around in a meeting and goes, do you think it hurt him? And I'm thinking, well, we should probably stop and inspect. Um, if it had a rigging rack, um, it'd be a lot harder for them to run over the gear. Yes. Um, like you said, they're, they're passive least, least resistance. You know, I know I need the bigger strap, but this one will probably work um, because it's not there. Could you imagine if you showed up in any trade with all your tools in your hand and then just threw them on the ground and left them all over the job site? And then you wanted to know why your tools weren't performing right, and why your guys can't find their right. screwdrivers or you know, it's a, with any trade, um, you know, organization um, is is a big part of production. So, you yes. know, being able to select I'm the property. Stealing that. <laughs> I'm stealing you know, and, that. And I'll so. tell you, like, when we do vehicle recovery with uh, – um, when I do vehicle recovery and battlefield recovery, uh, these guys a lot of times literally have 45 minutes to clear a highway. So them, their organization is just unbelievable. When you open up the side of these these big rotators and uh, recovery vehicles, they literally have every shackle is is inventoried in order, inch and a quarter, inch, three quarters. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Right down the low, they're they're all stacked perfectly neat. Every single chain is sitting in a piece of PVC with a working load in it. They have reference cards on the door so when they open up the door not only can they see the chain and the rating it says three ace 20 foot you know 5800 pounds but they have all their reference charts there they're set up for success and these guys continually analyze everything they do to think how can i do it better the next time it's not that was good enough and it worked what can i do better and uh, they actually post pictures of each other's rigging, and they tear each other up pretty good. And then I, they call me to get in the middle. <laughs> but uh, it's a great evaluation, um, you know, and it just helps people become better riggers. I love it when, when our riggers start arguing about how to, to rig something because that's a learning process. And, and that um, if, if there's one thing that anybody takes away from this today, and I hope there's a lot of things to take away, every safety person, every supervisor listening to this podcast, I hope that they would recognize a piece of rigging laying on the ground. It's not an isolated event. It's a system failure. We've got a failure in our system. We need to go back and look at making our system function better from every aspect. Um, and that kind of moving that into the, the human performance, human error and, you've admitted to this we've had this conversation before but no matter how well trained no matter how qualified no matter how experienced riggers will make mistakes so what are the most common just human error mistakes that you see out there 
typically the biggest error I see in the course of my whole career is people just don't understand the the angles. They just don't understand the angles and how it affects the rigging. So a, a lot of accidents I go to, it's just they didn't understand, you know, once they breach that 30 degree threshold that the, the load forces go up incredibly. Second to that is just application. I mean, I even deal with a lot of engineers that are extremely smart. I deal with nuclear engineers and stuff, but, you know, I'm a subject matter expert. So, you know, compatibility of, of hardware uh, has been a big one. D over D factors that a lot of people have no concept of, um, you know, circling back to what you said earlier, having that one expert on the job or some people, somebody can reference but if they don't even have the fundamental training to realize there's a problem that that's an issue but uh yeah i would say rigging angles is probably the biggest and second to that would be tension factors you know a lot of riggers are taught that that tension um as you spread the sling out you reduce the capacity but sometimes they overlook the tension that's being sent back to their anchor points and i always refer to people what's the hardest thing about rigging to me, it's not the angles, it's not the reduction factors or anything uh, that we talked about. Um, I, I always reference people, we've all been to fall protection class, right? What's the hardest part of fall protection? Not the harness, right? You just have to put it on properly. Sometimes that's a good trick, but yeah. put your harness on. Then you have a connection device, usually a lanyard or a retractable, you know, um, self-retracting lifeline. Anchorage. Uh, so, but what's the hardest part? The anchor. Yeah. The anchor. Yeah. Attachment point integrity. I know what my rigging can do. People call me all the time. Hey, do you, can you can you pick up 500 tons, 1,500 tons? We manufacture slings that break at a million and a half pounds per sling. Picking something up heavy isn't the issue. It's how do I connect to the load where the load doesn't come apart? You know, and I think there's a lot of guessing going on. Um, I'm constantly telling people out on the GC side that we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We don't have to have the guy with 20 years experience. We can ask the manufacturer of the product. So that's another thing that's been great over the last 10 years is all of a sudden I'm noticing these rental companies are supplying man lifts and generators and they have center of gravity right. markers on them. You would have never saw that 10, 15 years ago. No. Why did these people do that? Because the GCs and the people who are running the equipment demand Where's the center of gravity? Oh, you won't tell me? Then I'll go to this rental company that will tell me. They're now starting to put arrows and indicating this is a lifting point. Um, you know, I used to have to call the manufacturer and get a drawing from their engineering department to determine where those are. So I think, uh, I think we have to demand it from the, uh, the GC side, the sub side. So. Well, I'm going to take this to even a little simpler, and you're, you might get mad at me because I'm going to – um, okay. Throw this. I've been doing the same thing. I've taken advantage here. Is you one time confessed to me having had your hand in a place where you could have had a serious accident, realized it at the last minute. Right. So we were actually just about six years ago. So I have lots of experience in rigging by that time. Right. <laughs> so six years ago, I was up at a battlefield recovery, and uh, we were lifting a striker. And uh, the operator of the equipment, we even had an engineer out there who, who knows a lot about rigging, but we're literally five or six, I would think, of some of the best uh, recovery guys out there. And I just made a simple mistake, like a lot of riggers. Every time they went to lift the striker up, the shackles would fall down on the lifting points. And then when they would try to tighten back up on the rigging, they'd get jammed in a downward position. Well, I didn't 
communicate with the the operator that uh, I needed to push that shackle back up in the air. And right about the time I reached over there to grab it, he hit hoist up and that shackle popped. And I just thought to myself, okay, here's the rigging trainer with all this experience, right? Mr. Know-it-all. <laughs> I hope not. Um, I just almost lost my finger. It can happen that quick. And we've had actually a pretty good bit of hand injuries over the last uh, the last two years. I've seen quite a few hand injuries going on. Well, we have. And that was kind of specifically where I wanted to go is that we, again, no matter how experienced, how trained, humans are going to put their hand in the wrong place. That is going to happen. How do we minimize that, protect against that? I know you and I have had the conversation about the rigging sticks and this and that. Just any thoughts on that, on the hand injury prevention? Obviously, it has to be put into the training. Um, the right. training is, is critical uh, for people. Um, yeah, I was just, uh, I'm sorry. I, uh, yeah, so how, how do we get rid of the hand injuries? Um, I think I know where I wanted to circle back to on this or not circle back. Um, Philip had mentioned uh, the fall zone. So in web sling and tie down, something that we, we, we just started implementing into the standards. And uh, from my understanding, the ASME B30.9 committee is doing as well as we're starting the, the we're starting to use the term danger zone. Um, you know, people always think of the main danger from rigging is falling and we need to teach them the main, the main danger for, uh, for rigging is not falling. It's just being anywhere where you can get pinched, where there can be a sudden release of, uh, of the yeah. load. Um, a lot of times if we have, and it's hard to do this on a podcast, but if we have a two leg sling lifting a load, Typically, we find when we're uh, in testing, when the, when the rigging breaks, the load does not just fall straight down. Typically, one sling is going to break on one side of the load, and then yeah. the load's going to swing. Yep. So the danger area could be actually way over here, not necessarily over here where the load could fall on you. The same thing a lot of times is we're pulling. If we're pulling, the, it's not a fall zone. It's an anticipated uh, danger zone where a sudden release of tension could snap something back on somebody. In vehicle recovery, that's actually where most people get killed is when the rigging breaks and the snatch block goes shooting back to the uh, recovery vehicle. So I, I just think there needs to be more awareness, and I think we're starting to roll that out into the standard where we're not only you know the fall zone but all these danger zones where you can get pinched and hurt. Philip, do you have any follow-up on that? Or? I, I was, again, I'm just, I was taking some notes so I can steal some more things from Sam here because he's, uh, he's so, I mean, he's right though, that, you know, the, that he's so right about the, the falls. And we look at sometimes a lot of people look at it as that pyramid shape below the, the hook. Right. But just like you're, you're saying, Sam, it could be a, a long distance away from there, you know, based on uh, losing a sling or a strap breaking. I'm a danger zone, very important, and I'll be happy to give you some documentation on that. All the web sling and tie down information's there, and and it's starting to be referenced. So uh, I think that's a big step forward for uh, rigging safety. You both also mentioned ASME, and uh, um, maybe Philip, you want to start on this because I know you've had a lot of conversations with Sam about this, and that your training incorporates the ASME rather than the OSHA. You want to talk about that difference in 
in the uh, robustness of the standards? Yeah, that, uh, you know, a lot of times I'll joke with people that I could teach everything OSHA says in, in, on rigging in about 15 minutes. But if you want more thorough information, the ASME standard is you know, updated more frequently and uh, much more thorough and, and even easier to understand, yes. I think. You know, the first thing that comes to mind is the how many broken wires in a wire rope sling. And when you try to teach people the OSHA thing of uh, 10% and any eight diameters and they're wrapping their head around it. But if I go look at ASME, all I got to have to do is count. Right. And and that's just, I think it's easier for people to understand as well. But, but uh, I'm, I'm calling Sam the expert because I'm sure he spent more time looking at it and, and uh, knows more about how it's being updated. So what do you think, Sam? I agree with everything you just said. Um, OSHA, OSHA has some basic standards out there, and, you know, I, I think it's great to have those. Um, but if you go into the OSHA website and uh, you look at safe sling use and you read the statement, they basically said that they refer you to ASME or AMSI, you know. Um, it's, uh, it, it's definitely – I consider OSHA rigging here and ASME here. Yeah. Um, that's basically what governs my whole world. Uh, we call it the rigging Bible here. And uh, the best people I know in rigging sit on the boards for ASME. So I, th I think they're the ones driving forward the standard and uh, OSHA's minimum. Uh, I would definitely always lean towards ASME when it comes to, the, to rigging. One other thing just to kind of on the human error, human performance side of things is that, we, you know, I mentioned the system and the system drives so much behavior, but some of the system issues that, that I see with um, rigging is the production pressure leading to rushing and, and to maybe not getting the ideal sling for that. Um, and, and you know, fatigue being such a enormous issue in construction. And I don't think we're paying enough attention to that. Any thoughts on that? Okay, I want to jump in on that. Yeah, I'm, I'd love to hear your experience of this, that uh, I wish I had a dollar every time I'm talking about rigging in some subcontractor in the room. And so context is we're on one of those jobs that has a bunch of tower cranes, okay? So there's our context. But on some multi-story building project like that, I wish I had a dollar every time somebody in the class says, that load is 100% the operator's responsibility the minute it comes off the ground. And, you know, from that human error view, I think there's a lot of people that actually believe that, that it's their job to rig it and then hands off. It's, it's all his, his responsibility now. And, and um, you know, I always try to communicate that it's a partnership between you and the rigger. I mean, you and the crane operator, right? You're, you're signaling him, telling him where to go, Right. And then on the human error perspective, I'll ask this question sometimes. What time did you get to the job this morning? Was the tower crane operator already here? And, and what time did you, did you leave yesterday? And was the tower crane operator still here? And 99% and of the time that answer is yes. And, and so tying in to the fatigue issue I think a lot of times we have tower crane operators 
whose brains are functioning the same way a brain that drank too much alcohol that would fail a breathalyzer is functioning. But then we have people that rig loads for that operator who thinks it's 100% their responsibility and I'm hands off. And so I think changing that perception is really important, especially in our southeastern states. You know, some of what I just said doesn't apply where there, there's large union environments and they limit the hours of the tower crane operator. But down here, we'll work them to the point that if their brain's functioning like a drunk person, right? What do you think, Sam? What do you see? Yeah, out there? I, I agree. You, you, you and I both know that those guys can be there. You know, a good day, I would think for a tower crane operator, it would probably be 10 hours. I don't think they work an eight hour day. And there's no. many days there, they're 14, 16 hours, and then yeah. they're called back to do a concrete pour in the middle of the night. Um, and a lot of times they don't have backup operators. So that's why these guys, just like truck drivers, they're just pushing them too hard, too long. And then there's just human error. You're tired. That's right. Um, I do know, um, I, I have a friend of mine and that's actually his business model. Um, he, uh, he supplies tower crane operators and the way he does it is, is you're not just getting one tower crane operator, you're getting all six of us. So if my guy gets sick or you need somebody to work a double, I can send somebody else in and swap out the seat. So you're actually buying a package rather than just one operator who's up there op or operating with a cold or just not feeling good. And they don't even have the option to call in sick a lot of times. They know it could cost them their job. I mean, I don't know what a DC would say if that tower operator said, I can't come in today. I, I don't know that that's really an option for them. So, you know, maybe that's another concept that they should be looking into companies that can actually provide, you know, some relief when we hit those busy production times. That That's a great suggestion because you're right we don't have backup and you're right no operator calls in sick so that tells us right there that we have tower crane operators in major metropolitan areas swinging loads over streets that a are like philip said are legally drunk um or or quite ill so that that's another system issue that I think we have system failures that we have that we need to address um, along with the overall fatigue issue. Well, we are getting close up to one hour. Do anyone have any other thoughts on or things you'd like to mention on the rigging issue? Sam, anything? Mm, we or covered we, a pretty good bit. I've actually, uh, I've, uh, I've enjoyed it. Um, you know, I got to stand on my little soapbox and talk about rigging. <laughs> yeah, we got a rant, right? And and, right. and and we'll be and we'll do this on YouTube too, so you can people can watch us rant. That's great, Philip. Anything else you'd like to add to that? Uh, just to, okay. So I, I was thinking that the whole behavior model thing before we we got on here, and that. You know, our circumstance, right, that is we do have a lot of people that don't understand rigging, right? And and there's reasons why it, it's kind of relatively new as far as 10 years old, but we talked about that. But, it, you know, sometimes people struggle with, okay, that's a lot of stuff I got to do. So what are some simple things that we could do right now? I think we can whittle away at these imperfections, right? One, I think just having some basic conversations about reduction factors right i mean just if the if the distance between pick points and the hook to the the pick point if that's all the same can we at least start there 
where, where everybody on the job knows the 60 degree triangle, right? I mean, basic stuff. Can, can we start getting that? Maybe that's in a toolbox topic instead of the ladder extending three feet above the landing. Could we get a little bit better with some of that? Could we get a little bit better at uh, educating that it's a partnership between whoever's rigging the load and the operator and they are, are highly prone for error due to the system we have, right? And so can we, can we help them out a little bit more? Can we expect them to make a mistake and help them out a little bit more? And I, I think those are simple things that we can do right now to whittle away, right? Maybe, maybe we can't change the world today, but I think we can make an improvement of where we were 20 years ago, for sure. And every time we whittle away and we make one minor improvement, what we don't know is that we may have saved a life today. And that's why that's we fine. all do what we do. So I want to thank you guys. Appreciate you. Appreciate everything you do and the, the resources that you give to us. Hope everyone has a great, wonderful uh, Christmas holiday and a, and I hope 2021 is awesome. <laughs> Same Thanks, here. Guys. Thank you, Pam, for everything that you do. Appreciate it. All right. Y'all have all a right. good day. Bye. Bye guys.